Hello, hello, welcome to the Jumpstand Podcast. September is almost here, which means it's time for USIS, aka the European Contest for Young Scientists. Last year it was hosted in Dublin, Ireland, where I actually met my good friend Dana Venkert. She's our guest for today, so let me introduce her. Dana is a scientific researcher and project manager with five years of experience in academic research in the fields of neuroscience, neurobiology, and medicine. Her USIS project was also involved in those fields, which she conducted at Tel Aviv University. She's a spokesperson, a speaker at international conferences, and has an undeniable passion for science. She recently got back home from China. We're going to expand on a unique scientific experience as well. So that's enough for me talking. Hello, Dana. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Blanca. Thank you for the opportunity to speak here. Absolutely. I'm really excited about this conversation. We've known each other for a while, but I'm going to date a little bit back in time. And I'm just really curious that when did you first become interested in the world of science? So I think that from a very young age, I knew that there were many things that interest me. But I think that it was about the time when I was nine or eight that I started to focus specifically on science. Uh, before that, my my dream was to become an archaeologist. When I was nine years old in the third grade, then in Israel, uh, all the children at the third grade they go through these exams, and whoever is detected as a, what's called an honored student or a gifted student, then you can apply for programs that allow you to take extra classes outside of school uh, on Friday morning and to learn chemistry and physics and biology from a very young age. So I started taking these programs, which I think were a wonderful thing. And that's how I was exposed to chemistry and biology and medicine from a very young age. It's actually very cute. I found my old notebooks from when I was nine or ten. I saw that they taught us some of the some of the curriculum contains things that are included in the Israeli uh, final exams of chemistry. So it was really amusing to see how when someone just decides to teach you, even when you're very young, nine or ten years old, something that's very complicated, but they teach it properly then even very young children can learn something that usually usually you learn when you're 17 or 18. So it was something very, very uh, cute to see. Wow. And I think that that was the time I started being interested in, in STEM. That's just mind-blowing that how important it is to let children be exposed to science and not be afraid that, oh, it's such a complex and complicated idea that they would not be able to understand it. But brains and minds are so malleable and able to receive these new ideas. Well, you becoming an archaeologist or your plan to become an archaeologist was a new information for me too. It's just amazing to see how it all started and what a wonderful opportunity to having been part of those programs. Yes, absolutely. I think that it's very important to expose people to science from a very, very young age. And that allows people to get familiar with fields that otherwise when you're when you're 15 and you have to choose your majors in high school and you've never been experience, experiencing anything related to chemistry or physics or biology, sometimes people find it very intimidating and they decide not to go for these majors because they're difficult, because it's hard, because it's very time consuming and it takes a lot of effort. 
because they don't know how interesting that is because they have never been exposed to it. So I think I think that the first thing that the world and the educational systems across the world have to do in order to encourage young people to go and study science and technology and engineering is to expose them to these topics from a very young age and not to be disrespectful to children. Children are highly intelligent and they ask great questions. So to assume that, no, it's too complicated for a child, I think it's a very negative approach and it's very small-minded. There has been a quote from Albert Einstein that if you cannot explain it to a child that you don't even understand yourself. So science can be explained on all levels and even like more complex subjects as well. We just have to find a way to approach those problems. And I think it just shows dexterity and a high level of intelligence if you can translate those ideas and put them in a way that can be accepted by a child's brain. Yeah, exactly so cool to hear and that you had that support from your school and that you participated in those projects as well but now I'm gonna go back to your project and we can now see how it all started but I'm interested how it developed actually so could you share us about the research works you conducted in the field of neuroscience and neurobiology at Tel Aviv University and your project submitted to uses was also one of the projects you conducted there so I'm highly interested to hear about it although I I know some key points but it would be really great for the listeners to hear about your amazing work my research started in something called the alpha program it's another educational program in Israel that allows students chosen students to attend research in universities during high school so I actually started my research at the end at the age of the 15 at the end of the ninth grade and what actually happens as part of these programs that 50 students from across the country have chosen to attend it every year. And at the, the beginning, you're constantly exposed to different scientific topics. You get a lot of lectures and you, you go to see all the laboratories and the different faculties in your universities. And as soon as you find something that interests you and excites you, then a sort of uh, negotiation starts between the heads of the program and the university to see what laboratories are uh, willing to accept high school students and what high school students fit in each laboratory. And that's how I got to the laboratory of Professor Ali Barzilai from the Department of Neurobiology in Tel Aviv and started my research. My research initially was mentored by Professor Eshel Ben Jacob, uh, who unfortunately passed away a year after I started my research. So his colleague and close friend, Professor Barzilai, mm. um, adopted me to his laboratory in order to continue my research. Oh, so that's I how see. I started and rolled on. And I performed the research uh, as a part of the program for two and a half years. And I continued for an additional year after that, working in the laboratory as a research assistant, uh, after which I took a year off. Uh, because it was the final year of high school, it was very, very intense. And after I graduated from high school, I, I decided to take a year off before university and focus again once more on my research, which is exactly what I'm doing now. That's amazing. And that you basically grew up during your high school years being highly invested in the scientific fields. And just as you mentioned, having those very influential people in your life who not just rekindled, but fortified that flame in your heart, that passion for science. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. My research was about the effect of hyperbaric treatments on astrocytes. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy or hyperbaric treatments, it's a non-invasive and not uh, pharmaceutical-based uh, therapeutic that is based on providing patients, or in my case, cells, with enriched oxygen levels and to combine that with higher atmospheric pressure, which mm -hmm. means that instead of breathing the one atmosphere and 21% of oxygen that we're exposed to, a patient gets 80% oxygen and two atmospheres. The, the exceeded hyperbaric pressure allows better diffusion of the oxygen in the blood, and combined with condensed oxygen, you get each red blood cell to carry 10 times more oxygen than it usually does. So a lot more oxygen reaches to your deep tissues, such as your heart, your brain, your inner organs. My research specifically was about the effect of those treatments on a certain brain cells called astrocytes. These are the most common cell type in the brain and they belong to something called glia, glia cells. Glia cells are non-neuronal cells in the brain. And the astrocytes among them perform a lot of the functions that are crucial for the brain's homeostasis. It is involved in providing nutrients to the neurons, in neuronal transmission, in synaptic stability, and keeping the pH levels in the brain in order. All that has to do, all the brain functions that must happen around the neurons in order to provide them the optimal environment to function are performed almost exclusively by astrocytes and two other types of glia cells called oligodendrocytes and microglia. Oligodendrocytes actually create the myelin sheath around the axons that allows us to, uh, to create the neuronal transmission, how the neurons connect with each other, and the microglia are the brain's immune system. And what I tested was to see a specific effect of the hyperbaric oxygen therapy on astrocytes, and that's the DNA damage repair mechanism. That process is related to Alzheimer's disease, so that's where the inspiration stemmed from to investigate this field? Yes. Uh, astrocytes are highly connected to many neurodegenerative diseases, among which Alzheimer's. The reason that Alzheimer's specifically is very connected to my research is that the sporadic case of Alzheimer's, which means that the Alzheimer's that's not caused by the, the, the special gene, the EPOA4 gene, uh, we do not yet know the cause of that type of Alzheimer's disease. And that's the more common type. That's 20, not 20, 95% of the Alzheimer's cases are not genetically caused they're sporadic. They ca they're caused by something outside of the genome, outside of the body. Mm -hmm. And one of the hypotheses is that because of the way we live today, the modern lifestyle that causes us to be constantly exposed to radiation and to chemicals and pollution and malnutrition, these are all DNA damaging agents. And what happens is that our body has a DNA damage repair mechanism. It's called the DDR, the DNA damage response. But what happens is the combination of our modern lifestyle, which was created in the last 50 years, not enough time for the body to evolve and develop different mechanisms to deal with all that damage, and also the extending lifespan. We live for a longer time. All our lives, we're exposed to things that damage our DNA, and that damage accumulates and accumulates, and eventually when you're old enough and enough of it ha has been accumulated, it creates mutations. And these mutations can cause disease, also Alzheimer's disease, especially when the mutations occur in the brain. 
And because astrocytes are so connected to Alzheimer's disease, because they are responsible for so many crucial processes in the brain, I wanted to see if we can use the hyperbaric oxygen therapy in order to enhance the DNA damage repair mechanism in astrocytes and delay or even prevent diseases that are caused by accumulation of DNA damage. That's what I've just been thinking about, that of course, the damage is caused by oxidative stress and radicals are produced because certain external factors contribute to DNA damage. So because it was an effect coming from the outside, the approach of um, targeting the meaning that you change the level of oxygen so you give more oxygen so that's a, also a solution coming from the external side. So be correlated in that way? Yeah, sort of. We just take our body has an amazing mechanism which evolved through the evolution of thousands and thousands of years. The only problem with this mechanism is not the mechanism itself, it's that the, the shortage of time in which we completely changed our lifestyle and it's not enough for our body to develop a better mechanism, a more efficient mechanism. And also because modern medicine constantly treats people with diseases caused by DNA damage, then what happens is that evolution in a sort of a way stopped because it's not it's not relevant today to the situation because people are getting treatment all the time regardless of how efficient their bodily mechanisms are. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is to see if we can use oxygen, which is known to boost metabolic processes, in order to enhance this specific metabolic process of DNA damage repair. I know that there are several places like hospitals where um, they put people in an oxygen tank or oxygen cube, they say. Higher levels of oxygen is used to treat patients with cancer. There are definitely benefits to that because that's also related to that fact. But what your project is outstanding, not only tested the, the oxygen exposure, but you also investigating the role of GFAP in your experimental setting. So can you expand on that part? Yeah, sure. GFAP or glial fibrialacidic protein is a protein that's unique to astrocytes and it's mostly expressed in the cytoskeleton, means in the cell skeleton of the cells. And the GFAP in my research had a dual role. First and foremost, it was in order to detect stress. When when astrocytes are under stress, they perform a process called reactive aspergillosis. And reactive aspergillosis can eventually lead to formation of scar tissue, and that damages the brain. So we mm -hmm. wanted to see if cells that were exposed to the higher oxygen concentrations demonstrated less GFAP overexpression. That was the first thing. The second thing is because GFAP is expressed in the cytoskeleton, it allows us to be a, to see a very good morphological image of the cells. So we could detect their morphology to see if the cell is under stress or healthy based on its morphology by using GFAP. Oh, I see. So that's how it's correlated into it. And you also achieved some outstanding results. Can you share about that? We saw that it was statistically significant that the cells that were exposed to the higher oxygen concentrations demonstrated both less DNA damages and less GFAP overexpression. It means that the cells were healthier, they had less mutations, less DNA damage, and appeared to be less under stress. So it, 
it appears that indeed the oxygen therapy helped the cells to be in a better condition in comparison to the cells that were exposed to than what's called neuromoxia. It means the same amount of oxygen the cells are usually exposed to in the brain. My brain at the moment, your brain at the moment, because mm. we breathe 21% oxygen from the air and approximately 14% of oxygen reaches the lung and 10% reaches the blood and eventually our cells are exposed to 3% oxygen in one atmosphere. So that was my control group. Mm. And when you compared it to the study group, you saw more DNA damages, more accumula accumulation of GFAP. The morphology was demonstrating hallmarks of stress. The cells appeared to be under stress. It's just really interesting just, you know, seeing by numbers that only a very small percentage of oxygen reaches our cells, uh, which is their food to go by, which they use in yeah. uh, uh, oxidation process and, you know, all kinds of metabolic processes. And it's especially crucial when we are treating such a disease where those astrocytes are literally dying to get more oxygen because that's their survival food. Any, any pathological condition necessarily consumes more energy from our body. And if we provide the body with more oxygen and we provide it more energy, so the fight against the disease is more efficient. I listened to your project because we were in the same category at um, uses and biology. I went up to your project and listened to it and I was just as amazed as I am now. And Thank talking, you. yeah, for sure. And talking about uses, I want to ask you because, you know, it's going to be a one year anniversary coming up now that what did the uses experience represent to you? And I'm just interested to hear some of the moments that were outstanding to you. Uh, for me, uses was an amazing experience. It was my first time to attend an international conference uh, of youth science. And I thought it was something very special because it was amazing to see how such strong connections between people who were created in such a short time, even though people came from different backgrounds. And I think that it gave me uh, an amazing insight about collaborations and about the internationality of science. And even today, a year later, I am still talking on a weekly basis with some of the friends I made in UCIS. I have I've traveled to Switzerland and met my friends from UCIS. And when I attended an international scientific conference in Portugal a month ago, then I've met my friends from Portugal. And I'm planning to meet my friends from other places as well. And as you know, because you're a part of it, we also have our group in which we try to think about international collaborations we can all do together in order to maintain these strong connections created in uses. And I think that it also was very, very good that I could see other people that have the same interest and have the same standard for science as I have. And also I think that was something very humbling about attending uses because each one of us, usually when we are at home, then our hobbies and our interest in science is quite unusual and it, sometimes it's easy to feel a bit full of yourself because you're doing this, you're doing that, you've made a project, you've written a scientific paper, and then you reach something like uses And all the people around you are so incredibly talented and amazing and have done all these amazing things. And it gives you a perspective about yourself as a person. It gives you a new bar to aspire to.
So for me, it was a great experience. And I think that some of the most outstanding moments were, I think that were the more human moments, those little gestures and friendships that were created between people. And also just to hear about someone's project comes from a completely different field as me. Um, for instance, uh, Anna Marie, who is from Finland, and her project was mathematics, a field in which I have completely no academic knowledge, and her project was mind-blowing. Mm. So that was a very special experience for me. You go outside of your shell, which, which we talked about before, outside of your comfort zone, and I think it was really inspiring because at home we feel like that, okay, I'm doing this project, but like events such as uses, those we can say neural connections are forced by being connected to each other, and you know we can transmit scientific ideas, and those relationships will last and do last just as we had this group going on, focus on collaboration, do last for a longer time, and how sweet it is to, you know, meet with those people again, and just as you travel to Switzerland and have those travel experiences as well, there are things that we'll never forget, and Uses had, I think, made such a good program for us. We went to Microsoft, we visited the Irish Museum of Immigration, and also party closing up. But I think it was whole very unique experience. And anyone, I think, going to UCIS, you will find so many amazing people to connect with. And one of the tips is just to try to talk to as many people as possible. We've known each other for a while, but there are also new things to discover. I just got to know that you also worked as a scientific data analyst at Price for Life, and you were involved in in a nonprofit organizational work. So, what was your experience like? So, the way in which I encountered Price for Life was quite unique. Actually, when I was seventeen, I was invited to give a speech in a conference called Med for a Change. It's, uh, it's the same format as TED, of short, inspiring talks, and uh, I was invited to give a lecture there, a small five-minute speech about the role of young people in science uh, and how, how the future of science is going to look like. You can find it in YouTube, actually. Uh, it's in Hebrew, but I think they <laughs> might have subtitles. That's and, so cool. Uh, one of the speakers there was someone called Shai Rishoni, uh, who, was, who, who suffered from ALS. And he uh, established Price for Life in Israel. It's actually a global organization. And this organization collects money and uh, it offers prizes to whoever can solve the three major issues in ALS. Uh, one of them is to discover the, the uh, disease early enough. The second one is how to slow down the disease or treat it. And the, the ideal goal is how to prevent ALS. And my work as a scientific data analysis was to uh, create collaborations between laboratories abroad that should work together in order to get us closer to our goal of identifying ALS early, of early diagnosis, of treatment, and eventually of curing the disease. So my part was to uh, be always aware of the newest um, breakthroughs in science regarding ALS and to detect 
the most influential laboratories and to try to see which laboratories should collaborate in order to promote this scientific field of ALS. It was a very good experience for me and it's something that makes you feel very significant in the world like your small contribution to such an important thing like in the best meaning possible it's like you were doing stalking for an academic purpose serving a bigger purpose but i think that just really crucial because it also gave you a foundation that you, you became acknowledged with the newest advancements and breakthroughs in science who were pioneers regarding that issue and also you know working in an environment where you had to deal with new cases and that also helped you grow in those scientific fields nourish those soft skills as well how to manage the collaboration between laboratories yeah and when I started doing this I was about 17 year old and I've done this for uh, a year and a half almost two years and it was a very good experience and I felt like I was be being treated very eye level like no one no one told me I'm too young no one treated me like oh you're just a high school student people really gave me a place where I could speak my mind and I could help and I could collaborate and it was a very good experience and to all of you listening you should look up Price for Life an amazing organization Absolutely. And just as you mentioned it, I will also include it in the Insta story so that more people would know about this amazing organization, the outreach they do. I, I would love that. I think that ALS has only recently begun to become a leading scientific topic and it should have been that way for many years ago. But mm -hmm. it only now starts to develop with the acceleration which we would like to see every scientific field heading toward because Alzheimer or Parkinson's disease has been studied for, set for, for tens of years, but ALS has only got its spotlight in the recent years because of influential cultural people such as Stephen Hawking. Yes. Absolutely, and the the best way to get people know about it is just to the spread information and using those social media platforms. Even though they say that, of course, technology is changing our lives, but it can change it for the better and for the advancement of medicine and science, treat those diseases and help humanity. That you recently attended the Asian Science Camp in China as Israel's delegate. The camp invites Nobel laureates and world-renowned scientists speakers and promotes international friendships and cooperation. Could you expand on this unique scientific opportunity? The Asian Science Camp was a great experience because it gave a different perspective from USIS and it also focused on different things. It was mainly targeted toward innovation and cooperation and being open-minded and I think it was a very good platform for networking and also it was a great honor to be one of the 10 delegates in the Israeli group to this very prestigious uh, international event. So I'm, I'm very proud that I was nominated and eventually chose to take part in this amazing event. Yes, I was so delighted for you. When we were talking on chat and you told me that you were going to China, thought that this opportunity is just a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Surely deserved to be there. Uh -huh. Israel Thank chose you. you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and um, 
I think that it was very interesting to hear about the collaborations of Israel and China. Actually, the conference itself was taking place in something called the GTIIT, the Guangdong Technion Israel Institute of Technology. And that's a franchise of a very prestigious Israeli university called the Technion uh, in China. And it was great to see the international collaborations and to hear about opportunities that I may have in the future uh, if I will decide to go to the Technion. So now they are basically hunting you, meaning the universities, to be part of their system. That's so great. <laughs> Which city did you visit? In the city, it's it's more like a village in Chinese manners. It's called Shantou. We also had like a day and a half in Guangzhou, which is a relatively large city, mm -hmm. also in South China. And we didn't get to travel much. Like we landed in Shanghai and we got back home from Beijing, but we never had the time to go like and look around at the cities. You had the conferences held in Shantou and Guangzhou. Yes. Wow, and how were the spokespeople? They were Nobel laureates? Actually, they were. We had uh, Aaron Jehanovel, who is an Israeli Nobel Prize winner. And, uh, we had uh, Jean-Francois Legal, which is a Wolf Prize winner. Uh, we had two Nobel Prize winners who also, they, they didn't come physically to the event, but they sent like uh, recorded lectures that you can listen to. And Carla Rubia, which is an Italian Nobel Prize winner also. Um, and many, many other top leading scientists from uh, MIT and from top universities and very influential people in Asia and in the world. Their lectures were truly amazing, remarkable people, each one of them uh, a unique uh, scientific personality in his field. And they were also very diverse. You had physics, you had chemistry, biology, medicine, mathematics. On one hand, it was very, very good because people came from very diverse backgrounds, but on the other hand, it caused a situation in which most of the lectures were quite general and not that specific because people came from so many different backgrounds with different yeah. levels of knowledge. Some of them were in senior year of high school, some of them were undergrads, uh, so the lectures were quite general, but you you had time like to go personally and ask uh, the speakers' questions, and that was that was the majority of the of the most interesting parts. And also, there was a very good chance to do like networking to meet people from all these different countries. Absolutely, this just sounds like an amazing opportunity, and that you could be in such a scientifically dense environment. I think I think dense is a good word for that. Very intensive. Wow. But, but in a good way. Yes, for sure. Well, I assume you did. So you talked with Nobel laureates after the seminars and the lectures too? It was also very interesting to hear about the exact research made in their laboratories and a lot of people uh, could connect you. For instance, the one uh, lecturer who came from, from MIT. And when I was talking to him, then he said... I have a I have a colleague in MIT. He's a top leading neuroscientist, and I think that his laboratory will match your needs perfectly. So, if as soon as you finish your uh, first degree, your undergraduate, you will apply for uh, a master's degree, then I will recommend you. No way at MIT. That's yeah. incredible. 
Yeah, it will take me some time because I took the gap year after high school to work in the lab. Uh, so it will take me some time to finish my uh, for my bachelor degree. But as soon as I do, I think it's a great option. I think that a lot of people are afraid to start studying abroad and move into a different country and they want to wait until they're at their doctorate or the postdoctorate. And I think that nothing is never too early. Yes. Moving to a new country, going to the best university, I think that for your bachelor's degree, it might be in sort of a way a bit of a waste because the student fees are very high and it's the least influential part of your career. But as soon as you start doing actual research, it means from your thesis in your master's to your postdoc, then I don't think it's, I think it's never too early to aim for the best. And that you can pursue that scientific path that you've chosen for yourself. And yeah, just as you said, that learning from the best of the best to be in that influential environment where you can grow the most. I'm so glad for you because that will be such a unique opportunity to go to MIT, which is like top four or top three in the world. Yeah, yeah I hope that by the time it will be relevant, you'll still remember who I am. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, these opportunities will last. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. It was very different from USIS. Um, each one of them, like, it was unique in a different way. I think that socially, because USIS was a bit smaller, uh, then you had a more, uh, you had like more intimate connections created between the students themselves and here people were more fo more focused on the networking with the the lecturers uh, rather than the other students also there were many many students and not everyone's english was in the same levels so that was a bit that was a bit of a problem oh i uh, see Yeah, but it also it was much less intimate comparison to USIS. It was it was a very large conference held in a very big facility, um, with people from so many different countries and cultures and backgrounds and languages. It was a bit dazzling. Yeah, I see what you mean. So it was more, I think, profession oriented. It was more of a conference, not when you are you know, in a small group and you grow close together throughout that one week, but it was, you know, building up your scientific career. To be an Israeli in either of these conventions is a very unique experience because when you are in something like the Asian science camp, then you feel much more European in your culture, your background, your habits in comparison to all the people around you. And when you are in uses, then you suddenly notice the difference because Israel is sort of way like a mixture between the world, between Asia and Europe, between the East and the West. It's very unique because whenever you're in one of the places, you always feel like you're a bit slanting to the other cultural atmosphere or to the cultural habits. And then you come to Europe and you feel like, okay, now I see like that we're actually from the Middle East. We're not Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think it's it's like a very it's a very unique experience and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to enjoy all the worlds to be one time here, one time there. Um and I think it was something truly truly special and also to make all these connections it was very productive I think because the the perspective of people especially in China toward Israel is very unique because Israelis 
do possess, I think, many qualities that are less common in a lot of Asian countries because they're so traditional and formal and well-established and has a tradition of hundreds and thousands of years, then I think that sometimes the out-of-the-box innovation-oriented uh, thinking is something that is very adored in Israel. It's because we come from such an, an unformal, um, young culture. We don't have that many laws, that many rules, that many limitations. So I think it's a different perspective, and it was something very, very special to see how people from different places react differently to different situations. Like, I see. they divided us into groups, and each group had only one person from one country, uh, seven to six to seven people in every group. And we were given like, an assignment um, to fit, as a group, to think of a solution to one of the problems that mankind is facing, applying scientific knowledge. And it was very interesting to see the perspective of each person in the group toward different problems, toward the same problem. And like, if people think about it as individuals or as a society, if people think about the process of solving from bottom up or top down, if people are constantly aware of the limitations, like, will it cost a lot of money? Will it be very complicated? Or they're first oriented toward the idea and, and we'll face the limitations later. So it will be expensive. So what? Mm -hmm. So it will be complicated. We'll deal with that. Or the people are like constantly restricting themselves because it's going to be expensive. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be like this. It's going to be like that. So it's a very different way of thinking, like one that's more practical and one that's more ambitious in a sort of way. So I think it was a very, very strong experience to see how people from different backgrounds had you can say that what they bring from home, so meaning the cultural division, is usually portrayed in how they approach scientific problems or anything that might be related to um, social economic factors. Like initially we had to decide of what is the problem that we want to face. And you suddenly see how in different countries people look differently at different problems. For instance, in Japan, the concept of aging is very, very significant because they have an aging population and it causes many problems. In China, the whole concept of, of, um, of like green energy and, and reusable uh, materials and things like that, it's very much well established in, in the public awareness because it's a major problem in their country. So each person like brings his baggages you may say about the problems that they see as the most important yes which they are exposed to in their daily lives so of course yeah, they exactly. are more keen to um solve those problems that affect their daily lives i think it's it also can be applied if you look at at yourself and i you chose to study infectious diseases because of your aunt i chose to, i choose to study alzheimer because of my grandfather we're all affected by things that affect us personally oh i i feel honored that you remember i remember that it was like a personal connection to you as well yeah i was saying that yeah of course of course i did i remember that story really well and yeah. i thought it was a very a very moving story Oh, thank you so much. It gives a totally different angle when we are exposed to a problem that we share a personal connection with. 
absolutely. I think that's also one of the most beautiful things about science and the academy is how much you get to experience other cultures, other countries. You get to see the world. If it's by collaborations or conferences abroad, then you're constantly exposed to things outside of your comfort zone and outside of your little shell of your laboratory, your university, your country, your hometown. You're yes. constantly pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to confront problems that have a global effect. It's just really interesting what you are seeing here because, of course, I've you know, had a, a path just planned out for myself, but through those international experiences such as USIS, that kind of passion just clarified by being in an environment where I had the opportunity to collaborate and meet with so many amazing scientists. And I think there is a possibility, a great chance to start a chain reaction by, you know, having an influence on each other. And, and that's how we grow as an individual when we get back to our home as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you take uh, if you take use as an example, then uh, Tobaya, which was one of the students from Switzerland, then his yes. scientific field is computer science. It's completely different than mine. But at some point, he consulted me about neural networks, and he wanted to study how memory and processing works in the brain in order to create uh, the optimal neural network more efficient neural network and that led to a collaboration in which I helped him with the more biological side and he taught me a lot about computer science. So that's that's like a small example of how these things can help you grow as an individual. Because we are young scientists, I think it's very it's very good that you have someone who is at the same level as yours because many times you, you might be shy or it might be the hierarchy that is accustomed in your university, but you won't always feel very comfortable to go and ask one of your professors or to ask your PI. If you have someone who is more of a peer and a colleague rather than someone superior to you, I think that it's a very good comfort zone from which ideas can grow because you would not be afraid to say anything no matter how how uh, how ambitious or how foolish or how crazy it may seem because it's more of a brainstorming rather than asking a question it's something that you can collaborate with without a fear of being judged so yes. i think it's a very supporting environment yeah i totally agree because I think there has been a quote, you can feel like a fool for two minutes of your life uh, dealing with a question, but you would be a bigger fool if you hadn't asked that question and, you know, try to uh, look for the answer to it, because that's how we're actually going to grow. And I think there is still going to be things that are lies that we don't know the answer to. So it's never foolish to seek what's really the, the hidden meaning and just to turn those questions marks into exclamation points. Yeah, exactly. This week's STEM shout-out goes to the European Contest for Young Scientists. The contest is held each year in a different European city, and this year's competition will take place in Sofia, Bulgaria from the 13th to the 18th of September in, of course, 2019. The EU Contest for Young Scientists gives students the opportunity to compete with the best of their contemporaries, meet others with similar abilities and interests, and get guidance from some of the most prominent scientists in Europe. 
The contest is an initiative of the Commission on the Resciences Society program. It was set up to promote the ideals of cooperation and information exchange between young scientists. Intelisef also sends students to UCIS, and this year the winners are Leo Takemaru and Pujan Pandia from the state of New York, and Kaylee Hausnicht also from New York. Shout out to them as well! You manage outreach and led project at Microsoft, being an entrepreneur and regularly held presentations as a spokesmodel, speaking at international conferences. I know you've just recently traveled to Portugal to, to be part of a conference that was also targeted at neurobiology. There's a, an aspect I touch on the podcast is giving presentations because it is really defines our lives as scientists. So in your view, what essential abilities does one need to cultivate to give a capital? presentation? I think that uh, for me it's quite difficult to answer this question because I was always very uh, confident and very comfortable presenting um, a bit of a daredevil but mm -hmm. I think that it's very there are two very important things that must be done and I have also two things that I've learned uh, from the time I was a musician I used to be a pianist and these two things are one uh, make your homework it means that the more prepared you come the more sure you are of your knowledge of what you're gonna say and your background checks and how much you've studied it and how much you're familiar with it then the more comfortable you will be naturally i think that this the combination of knowing the topics you're going to speak about and practice i think that someone once told me that practice is our way to make profession uh, to make perfection happen naturally hmm. and i'm a great believer of that and i think that the second part and that's the more important one is to remember that you are the greatest expert in what you do in what you talk about or as a musician in what you play and many many times we're overthinking about, about what others will think about our presentation but in most of the cases, unless you are speaking to a very professional person, to a professor, to someone who is very, very familiar with this field, most of the times, not every little slip and every little mistakes would change your entire presentation. If you make a mistake, and that's something very important when you're a musician, don't stop, go back, try to redo it. Just continue with the natural flow of your speech. Most likely people would not even remember that. Yeah, that's something that like as a musician, many times small children have that tendency that when they make a mistake, they stop and then they start from the beginning of the line, from the beginning of the page and start over because they want to make it perfect. But when you present and when you play as a professional, if you make a mistake, if you made a slip, if you mispronounce something, you forgot something, don't go back and try to fix it. Just continue. And if someone is familiar enough with your field, he will ask about it and then you will have your chance to answer. And if they are not, they would never even notice that you make a mistake. So I think that it's very important to, to take things in proportion and not to overstress yourself. Yes, because you are going to make it more obvious and it would just feel more awkward. But it's, yeah, exactly. it's just so cool that you could transfer those ideas, those lessons which you've learned being a pianist. And I remember you also played in Dublin and we 
also have a video on you playing on the piano, which was really yeah, mind-boggling. But the natural flow is directed into to both of the aspects you which you've suggested, because just as we think of someone who is training, you know, someone being involved in sports and music, consistency is key. That you are dedicated to what you do because you love it, of course, but you have to put in the hard work and the sweats to have a level where you feel confident to present and to speak about your scientific research. So I think that's such a valuable advice you've given. Being convinced of your musical talent, just as I shared with the listeners, but when did you develop a passion for music? Um, I've always had a passion for music from a very young age, and it's something that also has been a part of my family. Not everyone play an instrument, but music has been a very big part of our lives. We go to concerts together, there was always music in the car when we drive at home on a Saturday morning. Music was always a part of my life and my older brother is also a musician. And uh, my grandparents had a piano in their house and when they moved to a smaller apartment, uh, they gave us the piano, and I was about uh, 9 or 10 years old, which is a bit old for, to start to play. But I've started playing, and I fell in love with music. I've always loved classical music, since I can remember myself. Mm. And I think that it very much matches my character, this thing that takes uh, devotion and dedication and being very meticulous. I, I, and also another part, as I mentioned before, that I was very comfortable on stage and presenting. It's part of like, it, it's part of having the opportunity to be in the spotlights and demonstrating something which you've worked so hard for, which I think that's very, it's, it's very uh, suitable for me. Hmm. and my characteristics of the person carried on that tradition passing your family and you know playing on the piano being persistent in what you're passionate about is is not only part of your character but part of your life and that translates into many aspects but since you mentioned you are fond of classical music which is your favorite place to play i think it's very hard because it's different kinds of of joy that you get from pieces i think that chopin is is very fun to play because you can be very expressive and you have a lot of freedom but i i actually like like the most extreme side of the spectrum it's either like romantic things such as chopin or Liszt, in which you have a lot of freedom and also you have a lot of room to demonstrate how talented you are and how how much of a virtuoso you are and it's about it's a lot about the show and the other thing which I love is playing Bach, which mm. is very meticulous and it's very mathematical and it's very much, it, it says that like, there is an expression in Hebrew that says that God lies within the tiny details. And it's in Bach, you can very much see that, that like the, the slightest change in the tempo or in the rhythmics is what makes the difference between an amateur and a professional. So I think that in Bach, the challenge is about being so precise and meticulous and and mathem almost mathematical. And in Chopin, the the challenge is how to, in one hand, enjoy all the freedom you are giving and to really show yourself, and on the other hand, still stay binded to the rules of the music, to the tempo, to the notes, to the atmosphere, 
to which the composer aimed. So I think these are very completely different aspects of music, which both of them I love equally. Each one because of its specific, uh, its specific hallmarks and its specific uh, requirements, you may say. Mm, so interesting to hear. And I think that you are able to perform both end of the spectrum of the musical spectrum just reveals your skills in music that you're able to play those really two distant themes as well i've interviewed a girl allison from um isaf and she is also invested in neurobiology she plays the piano and her favorite one is chopin so that's just crazy <laughs> To hear that you both uh, share the same things, maybe you know. Yeah, maybe maybe you should uh, introduce us to each other. We will become best friends. Yes, absolutely. I think I'm just bringing up Albert Einstein quotes throughout this entire podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> Um, there's just a tribute to him that if I were not a physicist, I would probably be a musician. I often think in music. I live my daydreams in music. I see my life in terms of music. So do you have those feelings when you know when you are happy or, or when you're sad part of how you deal with what's happening in your life? Uh, I think so in a way, yeah. I think in the last year or so, I, I was not living at home, so I didn't have a piano. Uh uh, around me enough to play and that's very unfortunate but I can relate to that I think that many times when I choose when I'm wearing the headphones and I choose what I want to hear I never put on just shuffle I always know the exact song or the exact music I want to be the soundtrack of my life at this moment I like how it like in my head I'm always thinking about if my life were I'm moving right now what would the soundtrack be and I choose that exact song that's one of the reasons that when I go running, I never put on headphones because I'm I'm always like so anxious about about changing and choosing the exact song I want to hear next, <laughs> and I cannot just like put it on shuffle and just like let it flow. No, I know exactly what's the next song I want to hear. Um, it's very it's very demanding, but uh, I think that that's like it's something that demonstrates how significant music to me because it's not something that can be like a background to me i'm always very concentrated in what i hear like when i go in the street or in an airport or whenever i go music cannot just pass by me like if i cannot listen to someone talking and to music at the same time because i'm so concentrated in the music it's not something that i can just like filter as as a white noise hmm. Because it's just so precious and holds meaning to you that you just yeah, cannot tolerate so. it and pass in the background. I think it's even it's it's even more like psychological or biological than that. It's not that it's so important to me. It's that I'm physically unable to concentrate anything else. Oh, I see. So it also expressed in in your physical responses too. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm one of these people that get goosebumps from music like I can hear a beautiful piece and I'll get goosebumps yes yes absolutely but you know it stems from the inside so there is correlation between the two you are a woman in science so I'm interested to hear about your perspective how you see the role of women in scientific fields and what would you say to girls who are entering the STEM fields in this day of age Actually, I think that I'm very ambivalent uh, regarding questions of that type because I think that whenever you ask something about 
how do you see women in science? It's something that makes the, the separation between women and women in science even more immense. I think that how do I see women in science? The same way I see men in science. And the same tips I will give to a young girl entering STEM fields would be the same tips I would give to a young boy. The only difference is that I think that as, as a young woman, you must pay much less attention to what society did it. You. Because I think that there is no absolutely no difference between men and women in science. I think that the only difference is the perspective of society about men and women in science. So I think that for a young girl, I would say never listen to anyone but but yourself and your inner feeling. No matter like if your parents tell you don't go and be a scientist because it's really demanding and when you how can you do your phd and have children at the same time it's also very demanding and don't you want to see your children i think that you should just like ignore these things and always think like is the is the thing that i'm being told now is told would be told to a man in the same position and if no then you just you ju just need to ignore it if it's a professional remark and at the same uh, probability, someone would tell the same thing to a man in, your sa in the same position, then you should take it into consideration. But if this remark is given to you only because you're a woman and your peers, which are men, don't get the same remarks, it means that that's a remark that you need to ignore. Interested to you know ask this question from girls in the podcast because for many years women were not allowed uh, because of the social constructs created by people because of their fashion way of thinking that they are not able so they were not able to enter universities and taking up scientific majors it's changing now and I think that you know due to many and many honorable efforts such as Intel such as USIS and other organizations that support women in science are changing the field but I like that have like a separate mark in treating also it's very from a positive point of view progressive and also focuses on the aspect side of it and not on the gender related issues yeah i think that like many times when i see things like um uh, a special event or a honored female student it, it it makes me even a bit mad because why would you need to separate the honored female students from the honored male students why is there a separation what is the difference like do female students deserve, why, why is there no male uh, honor students day? Why is there like women's day and women's day in science like that? Either think that like they give you the impression of supporting women, but in a matter of fact, they actually, they actually deepen the differences because they always keeps you conscious that women in science are something so unique that you need to remark it but that instead instead of looking at women in science as something completely trivial when you make it so enroused that actually says that women in science is something unusual and i think that that's not the perspective that we as a society should have women in science should be usual should be a trivial thing should be ordinary why because it's it's so it, it's so weird to think that women in science are treated as an extraordinary thing when in fact 
that makes people think that women in science is something unusual. But if we treated the position of women in science, which has a lot of things to be improved by, I agree. But I think that constantly talking about how extraordinary that is keeps it extraordinary instead of letting it just become ordinary. I think you should be like a spokeswoman. The notion of very being supported of women to pursue scientific fields might be that they come from traditional background that did not yeah. support this idea and they had to make their way through to ignore those barriers and reach the top. It was not that being women we have we have less abilities or you know we are less able to reach as high but i think it was because of the oppositions they had to face during the years and that's why they were so supportive and i totally agree that we shouldn't make this gap between the two genders but we live in developed countries so i think there are still women who might aspire to be one but because of the social norms established well beyond in their society that's why it's so hard to break out of that shell yeah i completely agree as i've said i think there is a long way that society must go through in order to promote the position of women in science and women everywhere in the world yes. but i think that we should we should stop excluding women we should stop making like a women in science day uh female researchers conference and instead of it just combine women properly in all the events that are happening in science instead of like it's sometimes it may feel a bit of a pity prize you know it's like we exclude you from the major events but we give you your own thing like we 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 don't let enough female uh, scientists to speak in a very sp special conference but we will make a small female scientist conference and you should be happy about it so i think it i think it's a very it's a very bad attitude toward the problem of of the gender inequality in science i think that is truly transforming in this day of age and that's why it's just so i'm just so grateful for those international competitions that uh we could attend such as you says because I think if we look at the gender ratio, it's almost equal. There is no separation between the two, and we were each given equal opportunities to present our projects. Yeah, and I think it also was remarkable to see that I think the amount of men and women was pretty much the same. Our background contributes to our story at the moment, or who we look up to to gain inspiration so do you have a person living today or in the past that you are deeply inspired by i think that there are many people uh again if i'll go back to expressions in hebrew there is an expression that says like in a very literal translation um i have learned much from all my educators it means that every person which crossed your road you can you can learn something from and yes. I think that there are three people which inspire me the most. The first of them is Professor Eshel Ben Jacob, which was my late mentor mm. in the beginning of my research. And he, he was an amazing person and he gave me a lot of inspiration and a lot of tools. And he, he motivated me to pursue uh, science. And I think that his perspective of science in the most philosophical and even somewhat artistic way 
was something truly inspiring. And he's the first person who, who pushed me to pursue science in the most professional level there is. And I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to know him. Mm. And the, sec- the two other people are my grandparents, which are amazing people who've been through a lot of a lot of things during their lives. And I think that my grandmother, uh, she she's for me an inspiration to optimism and how you can deal with anything. She's blind. She's been through two types of cancer. She's over 80 and she's still traveling the world. She's cooking. She's making sculptures. She goes to concerts. She goes to lectures. She, she meets with friends. She does sports. She does her life are more interesting than mine. And she's 82. Wow. She sounds like an incredible woman. She, she is an amazing person. And I think that, both my grandparents gave me uh, a true role model and inspiration for optimism on one hand and also for for a very, very balanced life between career and family and joy and, and doing the hard work. I look at my grandfather who is an engineer and I think that he's an amazing example of how you can be a true professional and also to combine with that your family, your life, your hobbies, and to find a way just to to have everything at the same time. And I think that I think that balance is is the best thing you can pursue in life, because I think that I think that we're at the end of the day we're all just people, and our each one of us has a different amount of balance. I think that at the moment my balance is slanting completely to the professional side and it's completely fine. And I think that it's very important to know yourself and not let anyone outside tell what your balance is. Either it can be by telling you that you're not putting enough effort in your career or the opposite that oh you're to you're focusing too much on your project but you're only twenty and why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? And I think it's very important to be very self conscious and, and know that we each have a different perspective of what the optimal balance is and don't let anyone in your way tell you what's good for you except for yourself. Humbling to hear that you have those examples set in your life. Your uh, mentor, he had such a great influence in your life and also your grandparents share a special tie and bond with. I can see now where you saying that you can have a child while doing a PhD comes from because you can <laughs> balance you know, having a professional life and having a harmonious family life at the same time. People cannot tell you what you are able and what you are not capable to do. Yeah, and I think it's also very important to 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 know that it's, it's completely fine not to live up to society's expectations. I think that if we go back to women in science, I think that many women in science are being criticized because they pursue science and they don't focus as much on on their social life or their family life. And I think that's something that people should be really aware of that no one can tell you what's best for you and it's not making you a less of a of a of a mother a less of a friend if you make yourself happy by doing what you love which is science i think that the one and the best way to be a good 
a good partner, a good spouse, a good friend, a good parent is to be happy yourself. And if science is what makes you happy, like it makes me and makes you, then you should pursue science no matter what the cost is. Really offers the perspective that you should not be moved and caused by you know the winds of of what society thinks at the moment because it constantly changes changes just be honest that's like a century a very small piece of history that went down and if we always confirm to the pattern that is offered by such a changing thinking that we cannot truly be a fortified person ourselves yeah, completely. So you've traveled to several places like Switzerland, Ireland, China. What is one country you would like to uh, wish to visit in the future? What's on your bucket list? Uh, in my bucket list, I think that there is uh, Scandinavia, uh, Japan, Australia, and uh, Scotland. I think these are countries I haven't been to and they all sound amazing, which one is its specific way. I think that maybe the next big trip abroad I'll make would be to Japan and so, uh, perhaps uh, the closer and this like shorter trip would be probably to Sweden to meet Pontus, whom I'm, whom I'm still in touch with uh, from Usus, which is really, really nice. Oh yes, I remember uh, him. Yeah, so we, we stayed very good friends and maybe I'll go and visit him. Uh, that could be very nice. That's like my bucket list. And and a, a favorite country in which I have visited, I think that I think that Germany and Switzerland are countries that I love very much. And I feel in a sort of a funny way, a bit at home when I'm in them. I think that's because where my grandparents came from. So I got a very European education. And I think that there are many things in these countries that I, I love very much. Mm. And also England. I, I've been several times to London and I love the city. Yes. Now, if you go to Sweden, you can go to England then later. It's not that far away. Your grandparents brought forward that European way of thinking and that you grew up in such an open-minded household. So if you have ever tried Swedish licorice, but if you haven't, you should. Oh, uh, I hate licorice. You, I absolutely hate licorice and anything that's connected to licorice or smells like licorice. Oh, okay. Then, then it's not the yeah, one for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Then I'm not going to bring that up. <laughs> but there are many sweets in, in Sweden and when I was there, there's this tradition that they go sweet and candy shopping on every Sunday. Sounds like a fun diabetes promoting tradition. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> that's the glucose day, you know. <laughs> but yes, yeah, Sweden is going to be so great and, you know, just to expand the scientific friends horizon as well. I know that you're involved in many things. What would a perfect day, if, if that exists, constitute for you? Um, I think it's very difficult to answer that because I think that the definition of perfect day kind of variates through our lives. But if I look at at, uh, at my current state, and I think that for me a perfect day would be to wake up really early, like in 5 or 5.30 in the morning, uh, to go for a run, to come back, to have a big, big breakfast, like to cook a really big breakfast and eat it like slowly in my garden. Mm -hmm. uh, take a shower and then start working, go into the lab, 
and having enough time and energy and life to have all the experience I want to make and then uh, stay in the lab until evening time, go to a dinner in a nice restaurant, come back home, play some piano and, and maybe watch a movie or just go to sleep early with a book, like something that's very, very not exciting and, and completely ordinary. That would be my perfect day. In the little moments of life when you are living in a harmonious day, you find so much joy. Just even, you know, going for a run and enjoying nature's beauty or doing what you what you do. It's not always extraordinary that you do bungee jumping or you know, swim with the sharks. There are just so many amazing moments in life that we should all learn to appreciate and not always look for the what others consider an endorphin boosting activity yeah, I, I that, yeah i'm a very big fan of uh, of routine and i think that once you reach like a routine that's good for you that you should stick to it i think that the day getting out of your comfort zone and doing exciting things is much over appreciated i think that people are constantly in a chase of something better something more exciting something more this or more that, and I think that many times it damages your life. I look at people around me and I see that their career and their relationships, and I think that the constant chase about the next better thing is something that's really exhausting and it drains a lot of energy out of you, which should not be like that. If you find a place, a person, an apartment, a job that's good for you, you should stick to it and stop looking for the next better more exciting more prestigious thing i think it's a very good thing like to it's a it's a very important virtue to know that you are happy in your current state and not look to decide it's really important to look forward where you want to be in but i think that many times people are so busy chasing things that they never stick in a long enough time in what they do to understand if it's good for them if they're heading in the right direction if what they do actually makes them happy yes because you are wasting away your life if you are constantly looking forward to next next thing but do not appreciate what it's happening in the present time i have this habit i know it might sound strange but i choose a word that means a lot for to me uh for a month being reminded of that word that just holds a special meaning so june was a very busy month of mine and i had to kind of balance many things and the word that I used was consistency that being dedicating in what I do and that just really transformed my way of thinking and you know handling these tasks and I really like your concept of being to a routine and being fulfilled by by doing those things I think that one of the problems of the millennials today mm. is that people are not consistent enough and that prevents you eventually from being a professional. If you're constantly moving to the next exciting field, you will never be a professional in one thing. You should you should have at least a certain level of proficiency before you need to move on to the next thing. Yeah, and I think it's a bit like very important to your career. And also another thing which I think that. Uh, oh, by the way, I like your thing with the words. I think it's adorable. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing 
which I think that's very, very important, aside from consistency, is it's something that uh, the, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, Aaron Chanovel, uh, whom I met last week, told me, and I think it's a very, it's a very good perspective. He's told, I've asked him, so what happens the day after? You win the Nobel Prize, and you wake up the next morning, and then what? <laughs> and he told me, he told me, I go to the bathroom, I look in the mirror and I see the exact same person I've been yesterday and 10 years ago and <laughs> I get ready and go as I've done yesterday before I got a Nobel Prize, I go to the lab and I do the thing I love. I, I do science, that's the thing I love. So mm -hmm. nothing like change, people are constantly changing their goals and that's a person who has reached the ultimate goal as a scientist. You cannot outreach winning the Nobel Prize and he won the Nobel Prize and the first thing he did the next morning was the exact same thing he did in the last 20 years it's supposed to go to the laboratory and keep on doing what he loves yes like, I've asked you how do you get the drive if you have reached the ultimate goal and he says that's the best answer to my opinion I just keep on doing what I love what other goal do I need aside from that that's a much better goal than winning the Nobel Prize to do the thing you love and to know that it's appreciated and that it's important and it changes people's life I think that's the best goal any person could possibly have and I adore that yeah. perspective about life and when it when it comes from a Nobel Prize winner I think it it, it says something Yes, absolutely. And that you could ask him in person about that. What I love about these very renowned scientists when you have an opportunity to talk with them is how they are deeply trenched in humility, you know, speaking about how they view this prize and not boasting about it, not doing any of the fluff because they have truly been persistent in what they do. They did it for, for science, not for the prize. So that doesn't yeah, change that much. Now for the end, um, I prepared a little bit of this or that game section. So you gotta choose either or. Okay, great. Okay. You know, just game. <laughs> yeah, just a game. First, are you a dog or a cat person? Okay. I, actually, I have both. I have a cat and a dog. Okay, but you are more inclined to choose the cat. Yeah, yeah. The, like, the dog is the family dog. The cat is my cat. Okay. Okay, then we are done as cat. What's his or her name? Uh, the cat, Mia. Yeah, oh, that's so cute. M-I-A, um, yeah, that's her name. Yeah, I remember the film Princess Diaries and, and the girl was named Mia. Yeah, that's the reason I gave her that name. It was when I was like nine and I really loved that movie. Oh my. So it's inspired by the Princess Diaries. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I think I could see her recite. You know, she had a very long name, like uh, Amelia Thermopolis or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a, a, like a four, four different names. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just so cool that you liked it too, and that was the inspiration to name her cat. Yeah, yeah that was a good yeah. movie. I love that. I love that movie so much. Yeah, I could relate, you know, being young that, okay, even though I'm clumsy, I can still become a person one day. <laughs> Swimming or running? Running. Okay, for sure. Absolutely, we know that, yeah. What I love about running is, like, the soon... As soon as you have the motivation, you just put on your shoes and you go running. And with swimming, it's just like it's a lot to handle. You need to pack 
your bag and you need to put in a bathing suit and you need to drive to the pool and you need to wait till there is an open lane and you have to swim and then you have to shower and then you have to take your things and then you have to drive back home and it takes like a lot more time and effort when i want to run i just put on my shoes and i go running yeah you can be still drenched in sweat but <laughs> for sure uh swimming takes a lot of preparation and and i can see where you're coming from i actually swam competitively for 10 years and i always oh, had wow. I always had long hair, so I basically grew up, you know, swimming, and it took like an hour or like 45 minutes to, to, shower. to shower and to dry my hair, because of course it was winter time and I, I couldn't get a cold. Running is definitely more efficient and not as time consuming as swimming is. I think that I grew up by the beach, so it's hard for me to truly appreciate it. Um... I think it really depends on what mountain and what beach, but usually I would go with beach. I remember you've seen snow for the first time in Switzerland. Yeah, I uh, loved it. It was so fluffy. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It just being in the side of Europe, it's just crazy to think because snow is so regular. But I, like, I'm the person who would love to live near the beach. So you know, it's yeah. like we long for what we do not have. <laughs> Yeah, in a certain way. I think that, like, you still love snow even though you have it every year, and I still love the beach even though I live right next to it. Yes. But I had, like, I think something that I remember is that when I was about nine, we did a home exchange with a family in Heidelberg in Germany. Oh, really? And we switched home. Yeah, we switched homes for a week. It was really fun. And they arrived to Israel a few days before we went to Germany. So we spent a few days together. And... The children, they were about my age, and they have never seen the sea. And we take, we took them to the seaside, and their face, when they first saw the ocean, is something I will never forget. Mm, yeah, just the, the joy of experiencing something for the first time. Yeah, and the ocean is like something truly tremendous. Yeah, just so captivating. Like, I think that one of the most magic powers comes from the fact that it can be, you know, very soothing and calm, but in like one second it can change into such a powerful being, meaning the ocean. It can create tremendous winds and has the power of controlling those two different things. Would you go singing karaoke or dancing? Okay. I love singing and I'm a terrible dancer. What would be your go-to karaoke song that you would, you know, you knew you would nail? I love musicals, so it's probably going to be something from a, like a broader musical loop. So yeah, I really, I really, really love musicals. I think that like my maybe my best go-to song would be Hallelujah of Leonard Cohen. Mm. Like I really, really love this song, and I'm, I'm I like know all the lyrics by heart. It's difficult to sing though. I say I sing it well. <laughs> you said I know all the words. Well, I'm, I'm sure you're just being humble here, but, you know, once we meet up, we're gonna do a karaoke sing-off. Oh, <laughs> uh, we, we totally should. If you come to Tel Aviv, then there is, like, a scene of Disney movies karaoke here. No it's way. It's really fun. Yeah, it's really, really fun. Oh my, that just sounds amazing. I would be, like, the there first one like, to try it out. There are, like, bars in Tel Aviv dedicated to karaoke Disney night. It'd be, like, you know, a sweet spot. So what does science okay. mean to you? I think that science means uh, two major things to me. The first one is beauty, and the second one is people. Mm. I think that the reason it means beauty is that science is so elaborate and complex, and I think that the ability to understand 
the world around us or the people aside from us, like if you look at sociology, psychology, and medicine, chemistry, mathematics, I think that's something very elegant about science because science is a constant pursuit of the ultimate truth. And I think that there is a side that's a very philosophical side of science that it's beauty. We look at the universe, we look at our body, we look at the origin of life, and these things are so complex and they are so magnificent and they are so humbling in their pure existence. And I think that it it holds a lot of beauty, science, and this attempt, this humble attempt to understand the world around us and to to be more familiar with all its wonders. I think that's something very beautiful. Oh, wow. And the second thing about science is people. I think that science is something much like art that is very um, powerful in its ability to connect people. People from, we've seen that in uses and I've also seen it in the Asian science camp. People from different countries, religions, backgrounds, languages, cultures are all united in that global goal of understanding the world better and i think that science even if people don't understand it again much like the art it has an impact on all of us in everything we do in all our lives from the clothes we wear which were made in machines by engineers to the food we eat composed by the help of chemists to the drugs we take to the light that we have in our homes to the phones that we hold in our hands. I think that science is a, an amazing way to truly affect all the people in all the world. As a scientist, when you discover something, you can tremendously change. And, and it, it's, not, it's not like jumping over hoops here. It's, it's the pure truth. You can change all the people in the world's lives. Think about the person who discovered electricity, the person who discovered uh, penicillin, Alexander Fleming. You think about these people, it was one person, one person alone who changed the entire planet in, in a, an amount of years that it's less than a lifetime. You think about that amazing discoveries has been made in less than 100 years. Today, people live a lot more than 100 years. Yeah, I think it's, it's amazing to think as a scientist, that you have the ability in your lifetime to make a change that can affect every single person in the world, and you will live long enough to see that. If, like in the past, people most of the times did were not able to witness their own success, many great artists and many great scientists, then today I think that because of science and how it helped to evolve medicine and to expand our lifespan, you, as a scientist, had the opportunity to witness how your work changes the world. And that's something I think that's really amazing. And as of me, I think that I'm doing all the best efforts I can do with everything going on in my life right now in order to reach a position in which I feel that my work has an impact on people in the world and that my work contributes to the joint effort of understanding the world around us, or in my specific case, how our brain works, which has a lot of beauty in it, and it combines so many fields like mathematics, medicine, chemistry, biology, physics, even computer science. 
And I think that I've chosen this field because it's so diverse and it gives you the opportunity to go in so many directions and to have an impact on so many fields. So that's, that's for me how I see science. It's people and it's beauty. You've wrapped it together and expanded the concept of science to you beautifully. I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate our conversation. I think we've touched on many crucial subjects in science. I have really enjoyed having you here on the podcast. Yeah, it's been my pleasure and I think it's it's an amazing thing what you do here with the Drop the Stem podcast. I think it's, an, it's a great platform for young people to get to know each other because as I've said, science is people and many, many times you are not aware of how many doors it can open for you just to know another person in the scientific global community. So it's an amazing thing what you do here and I'm really proud and I have the joy to take part of that. And also, as usual, it's a pleasure talking to you and I really hope that you will have the opportunity to actually meet soon because soon enough it's going to be a year since I last saw you and that's quite a long time. Thank you so much for saying these and absolutely I cannot wait to meet up and have that karaoke Disney song up. Yeah, karaoke <laughs> Disney, that's a must. Yes, yes, that, that's on the bucket yeah, list. Yeah, we should make a, like a pact that no matter where in the world we may meet, it can be in Hungary, in United States, in Israel, we're gonna have Disney karaoke. Okay, we agreed. You can find us on Instagram at Drop the Stamp Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.